Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour What up, my homies? Welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Oh my goodness, we are continuing the super popular parable series. This is the fourth parable in our series. And we are so, so excited uh, to jump into that. But before we do, quick round of introductions. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the seven-part Jesus Un series of books available on Amazon, on Kindle, print, audio, etc. I am joined by my amazing co-hosts, Katie, Derek, and Matt. Please introduce yourself. Say hello. Hello, hello. My name is Katie Valentine. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook group. I'm a heretic. I'm happy. It's good to be here. Hi, kids. Do you like violence? (laughs) I'm Derek Day, and I'm one of the co-hosts here, and I'm the author of a bunch of really cool shit and the curator of a bunch of cool shit. So I'm happy to be here because I'm happy to be a heretic. I too am happy to be a heretic. I am Matthew DiStefano, author of Heretic from the Blood of Abel and a whole host of others. And before we get in today's exciting, uh, I guess, penultimate episode of the Parable series, we have another word from our, well, ourselves as the sponsor. So producer, if you could cue that up. Hey friends, we are about to hit 500,000 downloads of the Heretic Happy Hour. And less than five years ago, when we started this thing, we had no idea that we would have such an impact on people. And we are humbled, we're stoked, uh, we're, just, we're just so happy and blown away that this show has uh, had such an impact. And uh, as, we, as we move forward in the show, just want to tell everyone that if you love this podcast, if you want to see it succeed, then would you please consider signing up at patreon.com slash heretic happy hour without our monthly backers we can't continue to do this show we can't continue putting out great content and uh, with the help of you fine listeners we will be able to to go another five years and hopefully hit that million download mark sometime in the future again it's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash heretic happy hour sign up for two dollars five dollars ten dollars and it will it will go a long ways trust me and if you do you'll unlock exclusive content available for you again we are absolutely humbled that this show is hitting five hundred thousand downloads thank you and if you would like to get in touch with your favorite crew of heretics You can exercise finger dexterity. That means make it go up and down and side to side. Finger dexterity by Dolly, 240-343-7379. Once again, it's 240-343-7379. And we do not have a hotline today. We don't have have any texts. We don't have any voicemails. We don't have any hate mail. Hey, is this thing on? What the fuck is going on? Listen, okay, guys, 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 listen, listen. You know, there's a lot of thought 
blood, sweat, tears, tears, and other bodily fluids that go into the making of this podcast. And it's all for your edification, enjoyment, education, and encouragement. So we need you to dial 240-343-7379. Once again, 240-343-7379. Get your fucking fingers going, man. Come on, throw us a bone here. Help us out. Bone. <laughs> we're we're bone. slaving. We're slaving away. Come on. I want to know what the other bodily fluids are that we. I, I know you I don't. don't. I don't. I don't think you do. No. I do. Limp. I, I Limp. do feel a little lonely without the voicemails, Limp. though, y'all. I want some. But, but we do. We we do have a question, though. We from our one of our lovely Heresy After Hours members, correct? So yeah. Yeah, what's up? Let's uh, let's at least in the meantime, in the interim, before everyone fills our inbox, let's it's let's hear it. from that. Yeah. From Andre Lee, why did Jesus perform miracles? Simply put, that's the question. Mm, so thank you, Andre. Thank you. We we've covered this, haven't we? In a, have we done we have we done an episode on miracles? I don't know. If we did, I've forgotten it. Uh, but I, I I do that a lot lately. Oh, I don't know. I, it's a good question. Oh, thank you. I was waiting for that. Um, I was. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I think there's different ways to answer it. I mean, on the one level, I, I'm tempted to say. Did he? I mean, yes, yeah, I know. I'm, yeah, I'm tempted to drop the why and just leave <laughs> right. did Jesus perform yeah, miracles. Yeah, because that's another, that's a, maybe a better question. I mean, I know that they're in the story in the Gospels, but some of those could be uh, allegorical, some of those could be metaphorical, some of those could be, you know, they, they don't necessarily have to be literal. I think when I was a Southern Baptist, I would probably have answered that question that Jesus performed miracles as a sign. I think he even says this, right? It's a sign that. Right? Doesn't he tell the Pharisees, if you don't believe me for the things that I say, believe me at least for the miracles. So I think I would say the miracles were a sign that he was really the Messiah they were expecting and um, and to take him seriously, I think. Yeah, it's the cure for unbelief. But this was something that I found out not too long ago, and we discussed this in a previous show, but there are early depictions of Jesus in Christian art where he was wielding a magic wand. That, to me, was just so absolutely revelatory. It's almost like a man and abracadabra go hand in hand. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know that I can answer the why. I think it's a great question. But ultimately, kind of diving into the motivations of Jesus or God is a little not decipherable, I think, for us. But we can ask is, why are the stories told this way? And so I'm going to audit the question, I guess, to redact the question. I'm going to redact the question uh, to reflect that one. But what I find compelling about the miracles of Jesus are they are focused around the things that troubled people the most, the need for physical healing, and a system where people were really not that cared for and medical facilities were rudimentary at best and around eating and around food, uh, the miracle of the, of the feeding of the 5,000, et cetera. And so Jesus helps fulfill the two needs that people have the most. And so whether the miracles are real, not real, they're told in a way where Jesus is caring for people's needs that couldn't, weren't being met in other ways. And I think that we're compelled to do the same. 
And so the real miracle is when we help feed a neighbor and a neighbor helps clothe us. I like, I like all those answers. I, um, talking about like the literalism of a miracle is, is one of those things that I find boring. It's like, did, did Jonah get swallowed by a fish or, you know, those kind of things. So I, I, I like Katie's approach. What, what, are, what would be the purpose of a miracle and how is the story told? Uh, I don't need to know necessarily whether a guy really walked on water or whether he turned a couple loaves of bread into feeding 5,000. I think um, there's a deeper level of meaning behind that. And that's where kind of the, the, the nuggets of uh, truth are. So um, whether, however we de- define a miracle or not, uh, I think, I think um, the big question is, what, what purpose would a miracle serve? And to me, it's like it serves it serves those who are in need of something, and so that would be the point. And so, how do we in our modern world serve the needs of others? And that would be the miracle. So I would call it, you know, like almost like a miracle of vaccines or a miracle of modern medicine and and, and things like that. And maybe that would be a little heretical. I don't I don't know, but that's how I see it. Yeah, I would I would add also. I mean, we may have talked about this before. But like I have, I've been really fascinated uh, over the last couple of years, like going into like um, looking at like mentalists and hypnotists and people like Darren Brown, who has an amazing special on Netflix. If you haven't seen it called Miracles, go watch that. Um, and then just noticing how there are techniques, there are things that people can learn and things that can be passed on that play into the suggestibility of the human mind, the placebo effect. Uh, which does work on the majority of people and auto-suggestion, things like that. And, and it's hard for me to know whether or not some of the quote-unquote miracles of Jesus might fall under that category. Like, in other words, yes, he does heal somebody of something and they do experience, you know, in that moment, like, wow, I can see or I can walk or whatever. But again, I've seen examples of these kind of things from people that are not quote-unquote Christians, they're not doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But they are real uh, techniques and abilities that you know can be taught and passed on. And I don't know. If, uh, again, this may sound heretical too. I don't know that that would disqualify Jesus from being like, oh, that's not real because he used, you know, some sort of hypnotism or autosuggestion or something like that. Because I think the person in that in those situations that you know the examples that I've seen, um, the person really is really does experience something, and and it is a positive thing. So um, that's. But again, it's trying to answer the question why. I think it's more now we're getting into more of like how. But yeah, I do find it really interesting. Well, great question. And again, a reminder. We have a hotline, 240-343-739. Use it. Ah, uh, you said it wrong. God damn it. Seven three. Two four zero three four three seven three seven nine. What what did I say? Did my dyslexia come into play? You missed a digit. Yeah, Wait, you missed for, the, a digit. for the win. Say it one more time, Terry. Two four zero three four three seven three seven nine seven three seven nine. All right, y'all. Thank you for the great question, uh, Andre. We have a wonderful, wonderful heretic of the week for you. He's very dry. He's very funny, and he's very British. It's the heretic of the week. My name's Phil Drysdale. I um, I'm a heretic, apparently, uh, according to many. Um, actually, at this point, according to everyone, I don't think that anyone would. Classify me as anything else. Hi, Thank you for joining us, Phil. And uh, I would like to ask you 
the first question that we always ask our heretics of the week, of which you are a heretic of the week. Um, why is it, why would anybody consider you a heretic? Why does anyone consider anyone a heretic, right? They feel challenged that their current beliefs might not be right, and they don't like anyone else might be right about believing something different, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've, I've been challenged for being a heretic my whole life in one way or another. I always asked questions in church. I always jumped around and was like, well, what about this? And what about that? And I'm not so sure about this. Maybe I need to find a different expression of Christianity that's right. And then, you know, I'd move on to the next movement, the next denomination, the next big thing, whatever it was. I read books all the time, constantly giving me new ideas, new ways to see God, new ways to express Christianity, to be a better Christian or whatever, be a more right Christian, whatever that looked like. Or And, and that looks great to the people that are right, but it also doesn't work for everyone else that you're now saying are wrong on some level, right? By you saying you believe one thing, you're by you know, proxy, you're effectively saying that other people that believe something different are potentially wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, people say I'm a heretic because I don't believe, I don't know, God is, I don't know, a, a guy that God hates gay people, that, I don't know, God's made people a certain way so he can torture them and then save them and threaten them, but like love them. And I don't know, all these kind of weird things, probably the same thing as like every other person you've probably had on your podcast. I would imagine like, you know, people hate anything that looks different and evangelical Christianity, most people look different than that. I'd imagine at this point. So rambling answer, but I mean, yeah. Why does anyone say someone's a heretic? Because they're scared, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I think, but that's a funny way. I mean, I think that's a fascinating way to put it. I've never actually heard anybody kind of approach it from that perspective that the reason why people get so angry that you disagree with them is actually that secretly they're afraid that they could be wrong. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's projection, right? Yeah. I think that's why people are terrified of people that deconstruct. Like the thing that, you know, the, the tropes that people throw around, someone that deconstructs never really believed the gospel or they they just didn't understand the, the Bible or they were never a serious Christian. What's funny is the people that say that about people that deconstruct know us all very well. Like we, we, they know that you taught them Bible study or, you know, it's class or that you sometimes stood in for the pastor and preached or that you grew up together memorizing the same Bible verses and they have to, to tell that lie. It's not about you. It's about them. They need to believe that you aren't like them because if you were like them, then they're just one question away from exactly the same thing. And that is terrifying to someone that's absolutely black and white certain that they are right and they know what's true and they're going to heaven because of it or whatever. One of the things that uh, Phil, like I've known you for a long time and and I watched you on your trajectory, watched your growth and everything. And and I think that it's funny. You, you said something there that really resonated with me. And I think that people are actually afraid of other people's success, right? Because what happens when someone goes out on a business venture, people try to talk them down when they get a new job or a, a different career track. They try to talk them down. Why? Because they're afraid that that person might succeed. And then uh, people are afraid that you, not only that you'll grow or that you'll go to a different place, but that you might outgrow them. Because people people are really yardstick oriented, right? They have to, uh, you know, you become a metric for them. And so what, what, what happens is, is that in this, in this whole deconstruction thing, you start seeing something in a different light. You start seeing something in a different way and you start appearing more fearless 
more confident. And I think that that, I think that one of the biggest things that I see in deconstruction is the fear factor. The fear factor. You know, people are afraid of, of, of someone else growing beyond them. I mean, I, and I just, I, you know, I'm throwing a lot out there, but I want to hear your take on that. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're right. I, the thing is, what's interesting is a few, few thoughts on that. We'll see if I manage to remember any of them after I say the first one. Um, I have ADHD, so I just go on these big, long rabbit trails and then forget what I was even talking about. But um, the biggest thing that stands out to me is, you know, with conventional faith, generally speaking, you, you see your beliefs as having arrived. So most conventional Christians believe that they have arrived. Now, they're going to grow in their faith, but there's no growing beyond their faith or uh, anything like that. And so the problem that you have when you have something like a conventional faith, which is I am now right. I've, I've achieved the, the final goal. I've, I'm in. I, I know all the answers. If, or at least if I don't know all the answers, I've got all the answers in this book or my pastor has them or whatever. The problem with that is that any growth has to be a regression. It has to be a move backwards. Right in in conventional Christianity, for the most part, it sets its goal in the past. So most conventional Christians are looking at things like Eden, <laughs> or maybe like you know early church history, or even like the good old days, maybe in the 1920s or whatever, when women didn't work, and you know it was just like how God intended, or whatever crazy myths they believe that don't exist in the Bible anyway. These these concepts are set in the past, and so any movement forward is actually, to them, it's a regression, it's a movement back. Um, and so the same idea with the beliefs, you, you believe a certain thing, you believe you've arrived. So anyone to say, well, I used to believe that, and I understand there's some good to that, but actually I managed to move beyond that. I found new beliefs that enhanced what I believed and made me a better Christian or made me a whatever, moved me into some other form of set of beliefs or whatever, that's that's inherently got to be a backsliding because there's only one direction you can move from the final destination. You can't move beyond it. There is no beyond the final destination. Um, and so I think that's a, a huge part of, of the fear is for people to say that there's something beyond my final destination means that I haven't arrived. This isn't right. I might not be right. I might not be in heaven, you know? Um, it's a very scary thought to to potentially be wrong. And if you look at, you know, it, a lot of ancient faiths, they looked at, if you do good, you get good. And what's interesting is, what's fascinating about Christianity is it tried to kind of change that. And it really took a several, several centuries, maybe even over a millennia, to really get to the point where they started to embrace, no, it's if you believe right, you get good. Um, and what's fascinating is with deconstruction is a lot of people are challenging the belief and going beyond and saying, I have different beliefs. So now the question is, well, how are they still getting good if they've got a different belief? That's the terrifying belief because now it's not necessarily, at least I can say, well, good things happen to bad people, but they don't believe right, they'll go to hell. But it's very scary to us um, as a conventional Christian, I say us not identifying as that at all. Um, it's very scary to a conventional Christian with someone that believes wrong, but seems to be doing well, seems to be happy, seems to be succeeding, claims to be in connection with God or the divine or whatever it might be that's a metric for success for you. It's a very uncomfortable thing as a conventional Christian to see that. Yeah, you know, what's really fascinating too is that, um, uh, because this, that, that kind of thing is, I had that experience, uh, when I was still consider myself sort of an evangelical Christian. Cause, you know, you, we tell ourselves these stories, right? 
when we're in churches and that's like, you know, we feel so sorry for unbelievers because they don't have the joy that we have. They don't have the peace that we have. They don't have the really wonderful marriages that we have. They don't really raise really good kids the way we have, you know, because, because we have Jesus, because we're Christians, you know, we've got it all together. And man, they just must be a huge mess. We just imagine these unbelieving people just falling apart and being a basket case and raging and angry and, you know, drinking and smoking and, you know, crashing their cars or whatever, right? And um, and and that that mythology kind of works for a little bit, right? Until one day you meet somebody, and they're the most wonderful, kind, generous, patient, understanding, giving people, and they're not believers at all. And you meet some people that have some kids, and their kids are so wonderful and well behaved, and the, their marriage is great, and all that. And they're like, nope, they're they're total atheists. And like that, when you start having encountering evidence that flies in the face of all those kind of stories you've told yourself, that's another kind of version of what you're saying, where it's kind of like, well, no, wait a minute. I thought only Christians could know what love really was. Only Christians could experience, you know, these kinds of things. And then it just blows your mind like, well, huh. And, and then, then, of course, the other side is, you know, you're, the Christians in your churches are some of the most hateful, mean you know, bitter, you know, angry people you, you've ever met in your entire life. So yeah, that's kind of the same kind of thing. So have you encountered that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you have a, a faith, so again, most conventional thinking likes to, it, it, it finds itself, so it's a, it's a state of psychological development to be a conventional uh, psychological development. And what it does, is it looks for certainty, security, and safety. Um, and it tends to look for it in an authority figure, whether it's God, a pope, a pastor, a king, a, a president, uh, whoever it might be, mom and dads, you know, conventional stage of psychological development in children is very much uh, a thing as well. Um, and so people at that conventional stage tend to gravitate towards conventional religions because there's an authority figure that gives you safety, certainty, and security. Um, and so as long as you've got those things, it's fine. But these sort of things are what's fascinating to me because you know, you feel safe and certain and secure with what the authority figure tells you. And then you meet Barbara who lives next door and invites you around and you go, wow, she's got a great family and she loves people and she's so kind and holy crap, she worships Satan. Or I don't know, but probably, probably not, right? Or, <laughs> or she's maybe, maybe or less. Yeah. <laughs> right? But that's the same thing to the, to me as an evangelical Christian popping around to Barbara's, right? You, you see a Buddha statue and it's, oh my God, she worships Satan or, you know. Um, but yeah, like, right. you, know, you, you suddenly are like, what? How on earth is this person such a lovely, kind, amazing person? How is God's going to torture this person for eternity. Well, not gods, but kind of gods or however that works, right? You, you do the mental uh, gymnastics to try and make sense of that. And, and it does, it messes with you, except the fact it doesn't. And that's the, that, that's the really fascinating part. And this is, this is what's so fascinating about things like deconstruction and faith shifts is that what's fascinating is what changes is not the questions we ask. What changes is not even our circumstances a lot of the time. What changes is our inner psychological way of thinking. Um, so I often say we talk a lot about what we believe in these changes, but actually that's not really the point. What we believe isn't really important. What we believe is a side effect. How we believe is what really went under a major shift. And so I, I like to say, how many people, you know, today have questions about the goodness of God? You know, if you look at the Old Testament, like loads of people would put their hands up, but massive amounts of them would go, oh yeah, but I've not deconstructed. So my pastor told me that God's ways are not his ways. And so uh, it kind of works for me. And it worked for me for, you know, decades that worked for me on some level um, or any of my questions. A lot of my questions didn't change. What changed is the way I think where the typical answers suddenly were just not acceptable. Like God's ways are not my our ways. 
st- for some reason, if you start to evolve, you're like, wait, that's just not a, a question I'm willing to accept, an answer I'm willing to accept. That's just poor, rational, logical. It's just not a good answer. Give me something better. And then they go, we don't have something better. <laughs> oh, well, now I've got an issue. Right. Yeah. It kind of strikes me that, that to if, tell me if this is correct, what informs your answer changes a lot. Like people might say, oh no, the Bible informs me, but even though it might not be, it's really a, what someone, it's what someone has told them about the Bible. That has yeah, so if you them. look at psychological yeah, development, this is really fascinating. So the next stage after conventional thinking, so people that develop psychologically from this conventional space where you look to authority figures t- tends to be only a one or two authority figures. You don't tend to have lots of authority figures. Um, you look to them for safety, certainty, and security. The next stage tends to start to find its own autonomy. It starts to look inwards and it starts to go away. I can think about things and and come to my own conclusions. And I'm still going to look to authority figures, but I'm going to be much more nuanced about it. So I'm going to stop listening to my pastor for immunology uh, advice or for advice on who to vote for. (laughs) And I'm going to listen to an economist for who to vote for. And I'm going to listen to an immunologist for whether I should get a vaccination or not, or or whatever it is. And so you start to um, value critical thinking a lot more. You start to question authority figures and start to defer to authority figures in a much more reasoned way and a much more nuanced way. And and I, I know all four of you would probably nod and say, yeah, that sounds like what most people do as they start to deconstruct, as they start to undergo this very different way of seeing things. They, they, they are looking at a bit more autonomy. autonomy. They're, they're thinking a bit more logically, rationally. They're questioning authority figures. An authority figure, by the way, as well, doesn't have to be a person. And so this is where what you said there um, about the Bible, Katie, is perfect, right? Because for many people, the authority figure isn't the pastor or the the Pope or the the early church fathers. It's the Bible. Now, what they don't know is what, when they say the Bible, they also mean well, my traditions, interpretation of the Bible, or my yeah, pastor, or my denomination. So it's still kind of like some old white guy, basically. But <laughs> yes, their 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 authority is the Bible. That's what's giving them the safe, safety, certainty, and security. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a major shift that undergoes under the current. Um, and I think for most people, we probably all have experienced that on some level. If we can take a step back and look, we can realize, oh, wow, the reason I started questioning the Bible is because, or the reason I started questioning that answer, where the answer used to be, well, the Bible says, is because I don't really hold the Bible says as an authority anymore. <laughs> that just doesn't work for me anymore. The Bible isn't an authority in and of itself. Um, I need to look at that more rationally. I need to look at it through a theologian's perspective, or I need to look at it through the different perspectives through church history, or, you know, there's, there's different nuance introduced that just isn't there with the Bible clearly says. Yeah. Well, you know, that's one of those things too, where I think uh, I've seen that same kind of trajectory of people and then they, that's that's why I think um, when people deconstruct the Bible specifically, that's when it gets really dangerous for them because they realize, because if you really, if you start deconstructing the Bible, uh, that's usually the first thing I hear people say is like, well, then what do I believe? Because if I can't trust the Bible, like it has all these errors and mistakes and contradictions and, and the words are changed and words are added in that don't belong there. And, you know, there's different translations that say different things. And, you know, there's, I, it's like, and I, and I, so sympathize with people like the average Christian once they reach that place and, and you know they want they just want to know what to believe and the Bible is just frankly not much help <laughs> yeah an interesting parallel um, I don't know how much time we have and I feel like we're going down a rabbit hole but oh, an interesting parallel um, is if you look at children as they go through this stage so children 
are at conventional stages of belief, usually between sort of the ages of six or seven through to about 11 or 12. Um, and so at this stage, they look to the parents as absolute authorities. They know rights. They go to them for safety, security, and certainty. Um, and yet there's times throughout that stage where that's shaken, that's questioned. And over time, they start moving into their preteens and we very quickly realize what it's like for them to suddenly develop a bit more authority, uh, uh, autonomy, question authority figures, start yeah. having nuance and going, yeah, but I'm going to listen to what my biology teacher says about that, not you, mom, or whatever. But a, a good example is, you know, when kids first, you think of the first few times your kids realize that you don't know the answer to stuff. It, it shakes them. It really does. Or they find out that you were lying to them. When your kids find out that there's no Santa Claus, how could you do this? Like, what way is up? If mom and dad are just making stuff up, like, where's my stability in life? You know, exactly. these are quite big psychological journeys. And it's actually very helpful in their development. It's a good process for them. Uh, it can also be very traumatic depending on the on the context and, and different things. But um, but generally speaking, we, we look at that and, and you look at this little human and go, wow, yeah, that is a, it's a turbulent time of life, realizing that you're, you're a solid, safe, secure, certain f- figure in your life that knows everything and can make you feel those things can't actually make you feel those things all the time. And you're going to have to figure out how to feel safe and certain and secure some other way sometimes because mom and dad can't do that all the time. And that's a really scary thought. And, and it's the same deal. You suddenly go, oh my God, the Bible, Jesus, it still gives me some security and hope and I feel quite warm and fuzzy sometimes, but it's not ticking all the boxes all the time and I'm terrified and I don't know who to turn to or how to find that same safety and certainty. And what you actually find over time is not that we find more safety, certainty, and security. It's that we actually come to terms with the fact that safety, certainty, and security are probably not the be-all and end-all. There's actually more to life than having those things. But yeah, it's a very privileged place to, to say that as well. Yeah, that, so actually, real quick, I just wanted to kind of pick your brain on that because I'm, I'm writing a book right now about sort of embracing mystery. And that's kind of what I'm suggesting is that uh, we actually... We're probably better off, I, I would say, if we can reach a place where we are comfortable not knowing, if we are okay with the fact that there's mystery. Um, not even just about theology, but about, frankly, almost freaking everything, right? Like science and uh, <laughs> how we perceive reality and even what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, our own memories, like pretty much everything is fallible at some level and, and should be, we should be held at some level of suspicion or, you know, doubt. And so, um, now that in itself, I know is really scary for people, but I found actually a lot more, I found some security and stability, and this sounds weird, in the, in uncertainty, in the fact that I know that I don't know everything, right? So what are, you, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that's even something that's possible? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I think the data bears up on this as well. So we've been doing research into people that are deconstructing and identify as someone that is deconstructed from faith. And what's interesting is you can measure this against different metrics. And so one of the, one of the metrics you can look at is over time. So have you been deconstructing for one year or 20 years? Right. And so what's interesting is as you map people over time, not always, but on the whole, they tend to hold less fundamental positions over time. So yeah. you see the percentage of people that identify as Christian, um, another certain uh, you know fundamental faith, uh, maybe fundamental forms of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, you know different uh, faiths that people might start exploring, and atheism all start to diminish over time 
not grow, which is interesting. And what grows is tends to be um, the category of agnostic or don't know. Um, yeah. And also spiritual, but not religious also grows yeah. quite drastically. Um, it actually grows about threefold, actually. It's quite, it's quite <laughs> a dramatic, it's the one that grows the most. And so what's interesting is that while many people can often go, there's nothing, I'm done, I'm absolutely done with spirituality. What's interesting is a huge portion of those people start to re-explore spirituality in, in some way, shape, or form, not tending to go back to something like conventional Christianity or anything, but um, to have something in that they would identify some more spiritual but not religious. But another metric that we can measure as well is um, on the on along the lines of psychological development. So you can measure people and how how developed they are. Uh, and, and that sounds really, really harsh. Um, but it's, it's, it's no more harsh than saying we could um, test someone for math and see what level of math they've studied. It doesn't make a person better or worse. It just means they've had more time to, to work that muscle. I can look at people that have spent more time or less time in therapy and I would imagine more people that have spent time in therapy are going to be healthier people on the whole uh, if you give them 20 years in therapy. Um, and so generally speaking, you can look at people and, and measure where they're at psychologically and people that measure further along psychologically score again with much less fundamentalism. Um, and so actually what we came up with a working definition for people to deconstruct, because this is a big hot topic in, in the deconstruction space, and this is part of what we do in our research, is um, we research people that self-identify as deconstruction, uh, deconstructing. And so we actually did a reverse engineer's definition. We didn't make a definition and then try and fit people in it. What we did is we grabbed everyone in the community and said, hey, how do you identify? If you identify deconstructing, come here and fill out some surveys, do some polls, do some different um, studies and different things like that. And actually what we found was three things. They, they questioned their core values and found that the church couldn't answer it anymore. They had then sought new ways to answer core values or to create new core values. But the third one was that they tended, and this is like 97%, uh, this goes across, uh, you know, it works up to about a confidence of about 2 million people, 97% confidence, 5% error. So I mean, it's, you know, very, very strong. They held their new beliefs with much less fundamentalism than their old beliefs. And so even though they had new beliefs, uh, uh, the myth that people that deconstruct don't have beliefs. I mean, an atheist has beliefs. They don't believe in God, right? So it's still a belief. The idea that people just don't have beliefs after they deconstruct is a really weird concept. I don't know what people think humans are that if they can not believe something. Everybody believes in something. <laughs> right. Um, but what's interesting is the beliefs that they had, even though they lived convicted that those were true, they held them really loosely and said, yeah, but I'm open to change. I'm open to being proved wrong. I, I, I'm willing to grow. Um, and again, that's a, a strong marker of healthy psychological development. And so it's not too surprising that that marker is there. But yeah, so people, that's a really long answer, but I wanted to give you some data points there that, no, that's that fascinating. people... That's great clearly start to become less and less fundamental as they deconstruct and hold on to their beliefs with much less rigidity. Awesome. So this is normally where I kick in with number two. I'm, I'm, I'm the specialist in the number two question. And we, we typically ask, what Specialist in number twos. Yes, I, I, I specialize in number two. You, 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 want, you want to hear it? I can, I can, I can, I can crank one out. Hit me. Please, please don't. So, so anyway, uh, normally we say, okay, what was it that, that triggered your deconstruction or triggered your um, uh, foray into heresy or whatever, something like that. But sure. I'm going to ask you something, something very pointed, very specific, because you were a graduate of the Bethel School of the Supernatural. Yep. And, and you were uh, a very in-demand, popular itinerant ministry minister. You were on the fast track. You were traveling globally. 
Mm-hmm. You were you were you were the guy, and I remember when I pastored my small church in Surprise, Arizona, and you came out to 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 speak for us. I was like, "This is an, this is amazing. This is a big deal. This is filled fucking Trisdale, right?" <laughs> so, how, oh, how is man. it? No, dude, you were you were the man. You were the man. I, I remember when I first met you at Dave and Connie's house. There was there was one like maybe fifty people in in the house in a house meeting. You know, <laughs> and so it was, it was it's a big deal. So anyway, this the this the point that I'm getting at is for you to have given up all of that for for the sake of of helping people navigate the treacherous waters of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. What has that meant to you? What has that meant to your life? And 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 how does how how does this uh, how does this manifest in your in in your forward motion in your journey? Yeah, um, I spend less time in a house with fifty people. <laughs> I would say, you know, I, it's rare that fifty people fill a house for me. I don't know if I have fifty friends, so uh, yeah, not not that common. Um, it's it's an interesting one, you know. I mean, you probably. Um, know this and, and have experienced this as well, though, but when I came and spoke, I probably spoke about fairly unconventional things. I wasn't giving you a Bethel message. You know, I was, no, it, you, it was pretty... You were on the grace thing. And right, yeah, that's, yeah. That's the other, I wanted to, and I actually wanted to touch on that, that, that how to, deconstructing from grace, because grace is sure. a deconstruction, yeah. right? Well, it's, it's so, all just constant, and I think this is it. Like, I, I think people... What they see is very different than what they get with me a lot of the time because they they see from afar and they go, oh, this is who this guy is. He's he's traveling and speaking in churches and they've not heard a message. They're going to not know what I talk about and I guarantee they're not going to guess it. It was probably very, very uncomfortable. There was a reason I didn't go back to most churches I spoke in, right? You know, like they didn't like what I had to say most of the time. I, I would go up and go, hey, guys, have you ever thought about the fact that God just like, you know, condones rape and infanticides? That's kind of weird, eh? What <laughs> What are we going to do about that? And I just leave everything hanging and everyone's just like, good God, what the <laughs> fuck? Right? I mean, like that was the fun kind of conversation for me was, was to go to a church and do that and see if I could like, you know, make it back to the airport without being killed. Um, <laughs> but I was always asking questions and I think my, my parents brought me up to ask questions. It's why, you know, I, I had been through probably about seven or eight churches by the time I was about 24 as an adult, you know, from the age of 16, like almost every year I was like, ah, this is good. It's not quite. There's a couple of churches I spent more than that at, but most of the time I was like, ah, this is good, but there's more out there. There's something else for me. I can believe something more better. There's, uh, there's more to be refined here. There's a, there's a group of Christians out there that have got something to teach me that are doing this better or in a different way. I was constantly chasing the right way to do things because I, I was very conventional. I was very black and white. I saw things as right and wrong. And so if there was a right way to be Christian, I needed to find it. And I, I was under no illusion that I probably was perfect. I think at times I, I probably, in certain theological points, if you ask me, I knew the right answer. I'd, find, I'd figured that one out. But yeah, I think it was just a natural progression of, of whenever, you, whenever you ask questions, it, it's going to lead to change of belief. I think it's really hard for you to be the type of person to ask a lot of questions. So I really owe a lot to my mom, who was very conventional, and, and she asked a lot of questions, and she was a pain in the ass for a lot of people as well, but uh, in her own way. And so I, I owe a lot of it to her. You know, it, at Bethel, it was an interesting time for me because I love Bethel and great people, amazing, amazing folks, had loads of friends there. Emphasis on the word had, I don't hear from many. But at the end of the day, I was a major thorn in the side for Bethel most of the time I was there. They kind of were 
constantly driven insane by the certain things I believed. Or I mean, I post things on Facebook and literally like half the senior leadership the next day would be messaging me or talk, trying to subtly talk to me. Like, I remember one week I posted like, a, a, it was back in the day, early days of Facebook. And I posted like, I wonder which book has done more harm. The book of Satan, what is it? The Satanic Bible or the Left Behind series. And like, it blew up. There was like, I mean, this is early days of Facebook. I probably had like a hundred friends or something. It wasn't much. And it was literally like thousands of comments on it and like four likes. And you know, you've got like people like Bill Johnson commenting on my Facebook, you know, like they're, they're like, like, what the fuck do we do with this guy? He's like yeah. a total rogue because I probably imagine a good chunk of people at Basel at the time would have liked Left Behind series. And certainly even oh. if they didn't, they didn't put it up with the satanic bible you know or they weren't wanting to paint a narrative of like hey have you read the satanic bible have you actually looked at it oh there's some interesting really good humanistic stuff in here um this is some really interesting stuff that's challenging um you know conventional christian believing um so yeah i I don't know I, i think it's been interesting for me constantly being a bit on the outside it's been hard for me at times um it can be very lonely a lot of the time and especially because you tend to have a very small group of people that kind of stick with you and often you then end up moved beyond them and they quickly reject you because they're the grace guys. And it was cool when you were one of the outsider grace people, but now you're yeah. not believing all of that and you believe something slightly different. Now we have to reject you. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's come with different costs of, of losing some friends along the way. And there's been some great people that stuck with me. You know, people like you, Derek, you've, you've, you've hung around. Yeah. Crazy person. Dude, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for you because um you know through it all i mean i've i've really gone off the deep end and and you stuck you stuck it out with me and i've stuck it out with you and and uh, I, man but i'm gonna tell you something this is one thing i'll say is that when you get a chance to actually spend time with people like I've, i haven't met uh keith katie or matt face to face like i have you but i spend a lot of time with them and and because of the time that i spend with them i have a, an affinity for them but because of the time that I spent with you, I have an affinity for you. I've actually been able to, you know, to feel your energy, to feel your vibe and to spend time with you, to break bread with you and really pick your brain. And that I think is the big thing. And, and, and I think that what happens is we get very simplistic and very dismissive about people without really knowing their whole story. And, 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 and you said something earlier and I want to just touch on that is that people get really caught up in destination theology. And, and it's really about the journey. It's really about, it's really about, uh, you know, traversing the milestones, not ar- arriving at any particular destination. But anyway, I love you, man, with my whole heart. Uh, and and I'm, I ain't going anywhere. I'm going to be like that annoying boil on your ass that never goes away. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, uh, Phil, I love that you were kind of needling Bethel from within. <laughs> even back in the day but while your journey was uh, was taking these road turns. But, you know, you've mentioned a ton of like facts and figures and research and psychology. And I have a feeling this is all part of um, something that you're, I don't know if you spearhead or you're involved with or that, that you run, uh, the Deconstruction Network. So wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, there's kind of two branches to the Deconstruction Network. So uh, originally what happened is I, so I, I spend my day... It, Day in, day out, I just talk to people that are deconstructing, give them a space to process and share and have someone to talk to that has no agenda whatsoever. I couldn't care less if people stay conventional Christian, if they become an atheist, if they become a Satan worshiper. It's absolutely irrelevant to me. I just want to give them space to process. It's a very lonely and scary process. But what in doing that, I was constantly talking to people who are like, 
I'm really alone. Uh, you know, the number one metric when you look at data on and, and markers on wellness uh, for people that deconstruct, you know, an interesting statistic. So we've known for a long time that people that um, leave church don't live as long they're less physically healthy and they're less mentally healthy than people that are in church. Now, what's interesting is people don't like to talk about this, but people that were never in church do live as long, are as physically healthy and are as phys- emotionally healthy. So it's not about being outside of church. It's actually the process of leaving church that can have such a major impact on people's well-being. Um, now, what's interesting is when you start to look at that well-being and you start to ask, hey, what is, what's the biggest thing that's hurting? The thing that comes up again and again and again is community. And I was getting this all the time in my messages, people going, oh, you, you just don't understand. I live in the South. You know, I'm in, no, I'm in like Georgia. There's no one in Georgia. Oh, I'm in, you know, I don't know, whatever. You know, I'm in Texas. There's no one in Texas, you know. Um, and I talk to people all the time and they just, I wish there was someone in Austin. I wish that Austin's probably a bad pick, right? So liberal. But, yeah. you know, I wish there was someone in Fort there's Worth. A there's a yeah, lot of people everywhere. Of people so this is the thing I would, I was like, I've talked to tens of thousands of people over the right. last decade. There's a lot of people everywhere. You can't swing a cat without hitting someone that doesn't like, you know, um, has, hasn't evolved beyond their conventional upbringing. Um, and so I, I was constantly hit with this question of like, oh, I wish you knew someone that was like in wherever, Sydney. And I'm like, oh, I speak to people from Sydney like almost every week. I can't remember any of their names. Uh, uh, I wish I could tell you. And even if I did remember, I hold everything in confidentiality, so I'd never share those details with you anyway. And so I came up with this idea, what if I just made a website where people could just log in as a member and put their address, uh, not their address, like their house, don't be stupid, like, you know, come and kill you or something. Like put your city or something, that's probably safe. You know, so you could say, here I am, I'm Phil Drysdale, I'm in Manchester, done. And it would put a dot on the map and it would, and people could click on a map, they could type in Manchester, radius 20 miles and then there'd be 20 dots and you could click on those dots and message them and say hey do you want to meet for coffee or hey let's chat a bit about your journey or which church did you go oh i know that church yeah geez that's intense um and so that was the idea initially just to help people connect um and it's done great that it's wonderful we just actually did a huge overhaul as well and um, we actually just added an interesting feature that people have been begging me for is an opportunity to tag yourself as um looking for dating single um, or looking for love in some way. And you can actually refine the search even more by going, hey, I want someone in whatever, Los Angeles. And you can tick the button. They're also looking for love. And immediately it shrinks down to those four people and you can message them and you can filter by sexuality. And so, so I'm kind of excited about that because we just did that and it's kind of a fun little thing. But actually people are going like ape over it. Um, but it's already 5,000 people on the website. It's only been up and running for a little while in a very beta form. And it's really exciting. I get messages every day of people that go, I thought I was alone and I've made a great group of friends here or I've met someone that I can meet with regularly. Out of that, I, I started to um, think about doing research. You know, the thing about deconstruction is that most people have no idea what they're talking about. And most people that are talking about deconstruction are absolute idiots. Um, I say that with love because they're not. Generally speaking, people that very few people that are speaking are idiots. Most people are very intelligent. Deconstruction has very little to do with intelligence. Um, but most people are certainly biased and most people have a very strong agenda against something like deconstruction who tend to be the people that get to speak about deconstruction. You know, some famous celebrity deconstructs or whatever and they immediately call John Piper for an opinion and you're like, Jesus Christ, well, that's going to be a completely unbiased opinion or, you know, like... Yeah, or Melissa something. Childers. Melissa Childers. Or, she, yeah. She's an expert from what yeah. I hear. Yeah, she I, does well, I just... I just had a call with her. So 
Of course. On yes. that Same and the rest really. of Christianity. <laughs> she, she, knows, she knows more now because um, right. we had a good hour sit down where she grilled me about the stats and she wanted to know the details. Really? So I think her publisher basically said to her, look, you can't write a book if you don't actually know what you're talking about. You have to at least identify it as target audience more accurately. You're my hero. Um, Thank you. So hopefully, now what I fully expect to happen is she'll probably go away with that and use the data in whatever way it serves her agenda, as we all would. We all do this to some degree. But for me, I was so fed up with deconstruction being a term that is um, generally controlled by conventional Christians um, that aren't doing any deconstructing and aren't listening to anyone that's deconstructing. And so I I started to research through that. I I started to do some open research with anyone that identifies as deconstructing. They can go to the deconstruction network, they can sign up, and they can do um, surveys that we put out regularly, a couple every year, um, and we can start to build a bit more data. And so we're building data like, hey, do you know that actually as many as 20 to 25% of people that deconstruct still go to church once a week? Like that was a really interesting statistic. That's quite a high statistic. I, I was expecting as high as that. Um, and actually that kind of holds for over time as well. Like it, it didn't diminish just slightly over time. So less people as, you know, 10 years out are going to church than one year out. And that makes sense because some people are needing to process a lot of things, you know, figure out how to have life outside of church, tell people whatever. But it's still a high percentage of people that still go to church or Many people, as much as 20 to 30% of people, still identify as Christian when they deconstruct. Again, very high numbers. Now, you adjust this for different things. You adjust it for wealth. You adjust it for um, uh, where they live. You adjust it for race. A lot of things um, can change that, and it can drop down to maybe 10, 15% in some situations, countries. Um, but again, you know, a lot of people, you know, someone like Alyssa Childers, the problem with this is, of course, she would say that those people don't have a right to identify as Christian because right. they're different, right? So that's the problem. That's right. and, and she said to me on the call, she's like, oh, she's like, well, I don't really care about most people that deconstruct them. She's like, because I, I don't have a problem with people that leave Christianity to become an atheist or agnostic or Buddhist. She's like, I've got a problem with people that still believe they're a Christian and clearly aren't. And I was like, oh, that's right. interesting. So I was like, I could give her some data on that and, and break apart that a little bit. But um, yeah, I think thought that was quite insightful. I think she seemed actually relatively um, self-aware, which was quite... In, uh, Wow. Quite interesting, but yeah, That's um, yeah, yeah. She knew what she was so, doing and what she wanted. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious, Phil, and I hate to put you on the spot because you may not have the numbers on, on the top of your head. But uh, so you mentioned how many people who deconstruct, you know, still go to church. I'm curious how many of them are still preaching every Sunday because I've run into so many people who are deconstructing who are or pastors. Such a small percentage are still pastoring, but when you like, you're looking at maybe maybe about. Five percent or so, but that's a very high percentage. So one of the things that really blew my mind when we were looking at data is one of the I was saying this to Alyssa, like one of the best ways you can ensure people don't deconstruct is to make sure that you don't get them too excited about this Christianity thing. So what we found was if you raise your kids in a Christian home, you're much more likely to deconstruct out of Christianity. So people who grew up in a Christian home. So one of the things, this is so fascinating. Sorry, I'm just going to bounce around so many different data points that are just fascinating. Um, This is one of the most interesting points, and it makes so much sense. If you grew up in a Christian home, the chances of you staying Christian when you deconstruct are half the chances of if you grew up 
in a non-Christian home. That makes so much sense because you've decided to become a Christian as an adult. That's a very different experience, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, like one of the worst things you can do is bring up a kid in a Christian home. I mean, that's, that's a bad idea. One, we found that um, people are much more likely to deconstruct if they've been to Bible college or seminary. They're much more likely to deconstruct if they've grown up in a Christian high school, if they went to a Christian high school. And they're much more likely to grow, deconstruct if they were homeschooled than if they were not. They are much more likely to deconstruct if they read their Bible more frequently. They're much more likely to deconstruct if they prayed more frequently. They're certainly much more likely to deconstruct if they attended church more than once a week growing up as a kid or before they deconstructed even. And so what's interesting is even as, as an adult who has choice, the more into faith you were, if you, att- if you attended your church more often, if you volunteered more often, if you were part of leadership, with each step up, you become more likely to deconstruct. And then it hits pastors, and pastors are so likely to deconstruct. I talk to pastors almost every day, a pastor somewhere going, you have no idea what this is like. And I'm like, I, I to some yeah. degree, I kind of experienced it, but honestly, I don't. And But I talk to people every day, and so I got a rough idea, and you're in a really, really tight spot. This is not a fun position to be, especially if you're beholding to you know a good-sized pastor's salary and you're deconstructing, and you have no real career move, and you're making enough that anything you move to is going to half your salary or worse. Like, how are you going to pay for your kids' schools that you've got them in, or you know, the college, or or your health, you know, healthcare? What if you've got like a um, a partner that's ill, and you need to pay their medical bill suddenly because you your option is, oh, you're not a pastor, you now work at Starbucks, and they don't do medical, or yeah, I don't or know, Walmart. maybe Starbucks <laughs> do medical. Who knows? Definitely Walmart. There you go. Go to Walmart, and you're. you're done, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really, but it fascinates me. And she, she didn't like that data point, of course, of course um, because basically, again, she didn't like that data point. Why? Because she is that data point, right? That's the scariest part is I am, I'm the, I'm, I think I'm the most passionate you can be. I'm, I'm the best. I'm writing books about how bad this is. And that to me is just like, oh, you're really close potentially. Oh, you she's need at risk. one she's little she's at risk, Christian. <laughs> twist. Um, <laughs> but of course, a lot of people that are involved in pastors and leaders and read the Bible regularly and go to church regularly don't deconstruct. So of course, this is not doing those things will make you deconstruct. It's doing those things make you more likely to de- Compared right. to the and average person that just attends church or reads their Bible once in a while. That's what we're talking about here. Not if you do it, you will. Yeah, of course not. I mean, it's it's simply just um, you know the the data and the percentages that are more. But there's, I guess, there's two ways to interpret that. Then is that either and, and people like like Childers or those who rail against deconstruction, either you'd have to conclude, well, it's probably better that we don't raise our kids Christian, so that maybe and, and then introduce it later in life, which they won't like that because that that goes against their narrative, or that deconstruction is a is a natural and sort of healthy process uh, for those who really dig deeper. So it's not so so the, the 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 kind of stock demonization of oh they weren't really Christians or or they were they didn't really care about it. It's actually the opposite way. The more you care, the more likely it is for you to move past where you started. And I think that's really fascinating information and I, I, I don't want to like demonize someone on this show, but I don't know what they're going to do with that data except to either ignore it 
or or not. I mean, maybe I, I don't know. I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but to me, it doesn't you know, fit the narrative. So I'd be curious as to how they're going to interpret that data. Yeah, I I, I look forward to someone reading the book because I'm not going to and telling me what they do. Um, maybe they won't. Maybe they will just decide. Oh, maybe we shouldn't just touch this, or they'll find a data point that they can use that that's helpful or interesting for what they're doing. Um, yeah, so it yeah. almost seems like the less you know about Christianity, the more likely Christianity can survive. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, right. Think about this logically, though, right? If I was to tell you, right, that the way of your being is that there are absolute black and white, yes, no answers to everything. And if you just know all the right answers, you'll be fine. Now, naturally, that's going to make you then go, I want to know all the right answers then. But it's also going to mean that you're going to look at things really closely. Now, the thing is, anyone that's kind of lived long enough on Earth knows that if you if, if you believe that everything is black and white, most people that have lived long enough learn very quickly life is not black and white. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of complexity. Um, and so it's really quite natural that if you believe everything is black and white and you throw yourself at that with everything you've got, it's going to fall apart quicker. Whereas if you believe everything is black and white, but you kind of just go, and I'll just accept what my pastor says, well you're less likely to hit that wall. You're much less likely to realize, oh, and, and this is why you have so many people early in deconstruction going, well, it's just all bullshit. Fuck this, I'm out, right? Because they, <laughs> they were so passionate, so black and white, they fully believed God, uh, fully believed their pastor. It's a bit like the kids who goes, well, fuck mom. How dare she say Santa's real? Blah, lies, you know, or whatever, right? Um, yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah. Right, but it's it's this anger at like you lied to me. Now, what's interesting is, of course, they didn't lie at all. They they really believe this is true. Maybe your parents don't believe Santa's real, but you know, like the pastor really believes this. They're well-meaning, probably believe it for the most part. I, I'm sure there's some really non-well-meaning pastors out there, but um, on the whole, they really believed it. I know that most of us, when we were more fundamental and more kind of conventional in our thinking, we really believed what we taught. And we threw ourselves at it with everything we got. And that's probably why we're here. So th this has been really fascinating, Phil. We know, we know you can be found because at least the found you. Um, and you <laughs> mentioned your deconstruction network. So I know our listeners, if they, if they aren't already involved as, you know, in that group or in, in that, um, uh, on your website, for those who aren't, let them know what the website is. And, uh, I know you're on social. So if you want to throw that, that yeah. out there. Now's the time. Sure. So it's the deconstructionnetwork.com. It's completely free as well. Like you'll never have any obligation to give me any money at any point. Uh, everything I do is free. So the deconstructionnetwork.com. Um, you can get involved there, meet people, connect. There's groups regionally trying to hang out. You know, there's a group for, you know, Texas is a group for Nashville or whatever. And so you can plug in there, search for people in your local area, connect. Um, you can reach me anytime, shoot me a message on Instagram. I don't do any other socials. So it's at Phil Drysdale. So I'm sure there'll be links and notes and stuff like that. But um, yeah, by all means, please, please, Some please. Some of the best memes on Instagram too, by the way. Uh, I do spit many memes. That is my, uh, my <laughs> life purpose memes. at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be, a, I'm, I'm a junior grade meme lord like you. <laughs> Yeah. Someday, Derek. I, I don't know. There. It's just memes are my language. I don't. I'm not very good at many other forms of communication. So I'm I'm autistic and ADHD. So it's an interesting combo, which does make my communication interesting at times. I tend to go on huge monologues like this, but memes just work for me. I see a meme, I see a format, and I immediately know what to put to make it work. Uh, I love memes. <laughs> yeah, this has been great, Phil. It's so great, uh, man. So grateful that you have created this deconstruction network. I know so many people that have 
connecting to people. And I'll, I'll just say personal personal testimony. When Wendy and I moved back to El Paso a couple of years ago, I went on the deconstructionnetwork.com, looked it up. I thought, there's nobody in El Paso. And I found like six people. And I've actually met face-to-face with at least uh, six of them. Well, four, yeah, four of them, four or five of them, yeah. Wow. And, and that was a few uh, years so ago as well. There was hardly anyone yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. They yeah, must yeah. have all been in El Paso. <laughs> yeah, Because yeah, I barely started at that point. <laughs> yeah, we were all in El Paso. And so it works, actually. It's uh, it's really a great resource. And the, the research, the data that you're able to... Uh, to pull together as a uh, uh, you know as a result of that, it's just so helpful. So I'm so grateful for that. So thank you. Yeah. So all the research you can find on the deconstructionnetwork.com as well. Is just go to the research tab. You can take part in that. You do have to set up a login for that because we do long term study. So we we track the user. We we anonymize the username. So it's all anonymous, but um, we track it over long term so we can get good long term data. And so check that out as well if you want to be involved or if you want to check out the reports that we publish as well. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Well, thanks for having me, Gus. Yeah, thanks so much. Phil Drysdale, my homie. I love that guy. I think he's great. If I had been born British, I think I would have been Phil Drysdale. I, I think so. <laughs> well, who would Phil have been? He would have been me if he was Keith American. Giles. He would have been Keith Giles. All right. Okay. He's Irish, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. You know, I've, I've known Phil Drysdale for a long time. I think I've been on Facebook 12 years and I've known Phil almost all 12 of them. Wow. And I've been really privileged to see his deconstruction, to observe his deconstruction, and also to to be able to kind of capture the deltas between his deconstruction and my deconstruction <laughs> and his deconstruction and some other people's deconstructions that I know. But But he is like... Uh, you know, Keith, he's right up there with you when it comes to deconstructing ninjas. He's yeah, right, ninja. there. <laughs> right well, there. I, yeah, I really appreciate, I think he's moving in some interesting places and I really love the research that he's done. It's so helpful to be able to have actual research done on this topic of deconstruction, you know, with people that are actually going through it. And so really love what Phil's doing and so excited that we could have him on as our Heritage of the Week. So uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Phil. Yeah, thank you. But now it's time to move on, and it's time to uh, Derek. This is this is all you. So this is your parable. This is the uh, fourth and um, penultimate. Uh, we're going to write our own next week yeah, or ne- in two weeks. But but now we've got the uh, the final biblical parable. Why did you pick this one? And and what do we have? What do you have for us? Well, this is the parable of the fig leaf, and it it's found in the book of Luke, chapter thirteen, verses six through nine. And and there and this is one of those ones that when you unpack it, there's really I mean there there's only four voice four verses here, but there is so much to unpack in such little space. But shall I read it or shall we just go into it or how do y'all want to do it? I think read it. It's short enough where we can read it. Oh, yeah, you guys just want to hear me read scripture. But real quick, but real quick, <laughs> but real quick, you you said there's a parable of the fig leaf. I think that's Genesis oh, one. I'm one. sorry. This I'm sorry. The tree. 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 Okay. Okay. So, oh, man. I would like to hear great, I'd like to hear great reverence <laughs> and uh, something as you read this. So I'm going to, now that you mentioned it, oh, I'm going to take some okay. interest in it. All right. And he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came out. And sought fruit thereon and found none. 
Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answered, and he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after it, thou shalt cut it down. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Oh, you sound like you should be on a British documentary where you're like the voice reading the scripture in the background and then they do commentary on it. <laughs> there you go. We know, we know Derek's next side hustle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, was, I was trying so, to get in uh, touch with my Southern, bre- Southern black preacher. <laughs> so um, I, as you were reading this, I was realizing this is a parallel, right, to Mark chapter 11, where, but it's not a parable. When Jesus is going to, says he's going to Bethany, they were leaving Bethany and he was hungry and he saw a fig tree in the distance. In the distance and he curses it. And then it's, there's nothing on it because it wasn't the season for figs. It actually makes the point of saying it wasn't even the season, but he still curses it. So I think there's a parallel here. It's, I wonder if... if but um, you, know, you know why Jesus cursed it in, in the other one? Huh? And this is, this is a biological or a botanical lesson, uh-huh. right? That even though it was not the season for figs, there were leaves on the tree. Yes. And that a fig bears leaves at the same time it bears fruit. I did not know that. So that when, when Jesus was looking for, he saw leaves uh-huh. and no uh-huh. fruit. Got and it. so this tree was essentially a hypocrite because it had leaves or it had, it had the appearance of the fruit, but no fruit therein. But no actual fruit. Huh. That sounds like a lot of people I know. Uh, anyway, but that, but that's another one. That's not the one we're talking about. Sorry. I didn't mean to distract us right away. No, that's okay. Well, I'll just start off in saying, so I, for those who don't know, I love to garden. I I have, um, an orchard, a vineyard and uh, a garden that we have now finished since the campfire, uh, in 2018 burned everything to the ground. And I will say that the owner of this plot of land doesn't know a lot about trees because trees tend to take three to five years to bear fruit. Uh, You can't plant a tree and within at minimum three, sometimes five. So you can't plant a tree and expect fruit the next season. uh, Same thing with grapes, although grapes can be a little bit quicker. Also, another, another lesson in botany is that fig trees mature quickly. It's another one. Like I said, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, a lot. There is a lot to unpack here. And that was, I'm glad you said that. This is going to bring me to my next point, which is even if it's ready to bear fruit, it's hardly the the fault of of the tree. It's not necessarily a bad tree. You could have a nutrient deficiency in the soil, which then that's, that's on you to amend the soil. Uh, when we've gardened before, the first couple seasons are never as good as season four, five, and, and on because you've amended the soil over years and you've built up that nutrient base. So just from a, you know, approaching this literally as a, as a, you know, man working in the field and an owner of the field, like this, this owner is not really up on, uh, I think how plants work and whose responsibility it might be to make sure that they bear fruit. And not only that, 
there was a little bit of blame shifting here because he said unto the dresser of the vineyard. In other words, this is my land. This is my tree. I'm looking for my fruit, but I'm asking you, why is this not right? That's like I said, there's, there's a whole lot to unpack here. <laughs> yeah. So I, this is I, my, my, the wheels of my brain are turning round and round. I'm really enjoying this. Um, does anyone have kind of a standard interpretation that they've heard that they've grown up with that's now feels, you know, uncomfortable? You mean about this specific parable? About this parable, yeah. Like, I haven't heard this one a whole, whole lot. I hear more that one in Mark 11. I mean, I can certainly see people being like, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to hell. Right, you're going to get cut down. <laughs> or you're getting, you're, you're, yeah. you're getting it feels like off. a threat. It feels like a threat on a warning. Like, here's your last <laughs> yeah. chance, dude. You have, this is your very last chance. Yeah, you're dying next year. Get it, yes. with, get it right with God. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You've been planted... You've been watered, you've been fertilized, you've been dressed, and yet and still, you fail to bear fruit, you dirty, rotten sinner, you. You done fucked up. Even with all the manure around you, nothing. You know, know, loaded you down with bullshit, and you still haven't (laughs) bear any fruit. (laughs) Come on, man. Yeah. it's this is this and again this is like uh, like one of these things you know so the the dresser of the vineyard makes an appeal makes an and and this is this is almost like Abraham negotiating with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah you know he's 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 trying to make an appeal for this tree apparently and see the thing is the the dresser of the vineyard also has to be a lover of the plants he has to be a lover of the soil and so so he probably had some emotional attachment to this tree otherwise he wouldn't have made the appeal he he would have just you know okay whatever whatever lord you know your your you know your will be done but instead he says let it alone this year now, I'm gonna dig. I'm gonna dig a trench around it, and I'm gonna load it down with dung, and and this should give us the desired result. And 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 so when I when I think about this, a lot of times, you know, we're talking about this as a parable for uh, you know, or or something related to to uh, to hell, and you know, being a fruitless servant, but. You, you always have that person, you know, you have your, your praying grandmother or the preacher or the, the church mother that's looking after your dirty, rotten ass, right? And says, you know, listen, Lord, I know he's a good boy. I know he's, I know she's a good girl. You know, the, the, somebody's praying for you. And that's what this, the, what this dresser of the vineyard is. He's making an appeal to the Lord saying, listen, I know it doesn't look good right now. But if you just give him a chance and give me a chance, let, let me, let me prove the value of my servitude. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a, an alternate interpretation to this too. Um, the idea that the owner of this vineyard, I think we've already kind of alluded to this, that he doesn't really understand, um, how he owns the, the ground, but he's not a great, uh, sort of like vineyard person, which is why he's, of course, hired a vine dresser. And, um, apparently, and again, I just found this, uh, this is a, a, a note. Uh, so this is not, not something I knew before we hit record, but the, uh, the, the according to Leviticus 19, starting in verse 23, uh, according to Levitical law, it's actually forbidden to eat 
fruit from a fig tree in the first, within the first three years. And so the vine dresser probably knew that. And, and if there was any fruit in those first three years, uh, the reason the, the owner of the vineyard never found any when he showed up once a year or so to just check on it, the reason he never got any figs off of that particular tree is that the vine dresser probably plucked them and threw them away uh, in accordance with that law because you're not supposed to do it in the first three years. And so in a way, maybe the vine dresser, if that's, if that's a correct interpretation, uh, but it sort of sheds a light on some background on this, that maybe the vine dresser is actually just being really gracious. Like he could just say, you dumbass. But instead he's like, well, oh, you know what? Let's just give it one more year. Because he knows if we wait a year, then there, there's been fruit already. He's been plucking it off and throwing it away. Yeah, I just come back next year and, and there'll be plenty of fruit because he's been, he's been caring for the, this fig tree all along. And so he knows full well that, yeah, next year you're going to be pretty impressed. So my take on the parable was illuminated when I read what comes right before it in the first five verses of Luke 13. So this starts in verse six, but in uh, the first couple of verses of Luke 13, um, is, I'll just read, I'll kind of read it and edit it as I go. But it says, uh, at that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And also in chapter 12, which I have done some critical research on like 20 years ago. (laughs) It's been a long time. But there's some really horrific parables that I spared all you listeners. I spared you from having to deal with these horrific parables uh, with enslaved people, where enslaved people are just treated horrifically and tortured and killed. And I believe that those parables in Luke 12 are um, how, how not to be asshole parables. Like, don't be like the wicked person that's doing all this torturing. And then we get this little note here about the Galileans and the 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell. And I love how Jesus makes it a point here to say, they're not killed because they did anything worse or anything better. Like they're they're bystanders uh, in a corrupt system. So then I wonder if that, if the parable of the fig tree is a commentary on all of that. Like the fig tree is not like, doesn't deserve to be dug up. It doesn't deserve to be um, torn down just because it's sitting there. It's no better, no worse. It's just, it's a, it's a fucking fig tree. Uh, being a fig tree uh, and, and kind of doing its job. And so I'm kind of wondering if the fig tree is this parable that illuminates the, the senseless violence. And God knows with 2022 so far, uh, and all the horrific violence we've seen, um, this might be um, a commentary that's still really relevant to us today. So I'll throw that out there. Yeah, I want to. I want to throw this out here too. That here, the dresser of the vineyard is talking to the owner of the land. Now, a lot of times these parables are framed like the the person that's called Lord is a metaphor for God or a representation of God in the parable. And I, and I, I find a, a loose parallel to this and the Syrophoenician woman who appealed to Jesus that even the dogs are fit or, or the, even the dogs get the crumbs. And, and so, so here 
you have essentially someone correcting who is a portrayal of God. And again, this goes back to the the whole thing about Abraham. You know, hey, God, are, are you sure that you want to do this? And 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 trying trying to bargain with God or trying to uh, to talk God out of something. Like I said, there's there's a lot a lot here. And and also, uh, Katie, you mentioned a, a passage of scripture. You said where was the you know the uh, don't be an asshole passage. And and I wanted to use that as a shameless plug for uh, for Matt's book, Don't Be a Dick. And don't be a dick or an asshole. That could be the follow up. Katie, you can write the don't be an asshole <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in essence, in the tradition, I'll say traditional, I put it in air quotes, our listeners can't see it, but the traditional way evangelicals interpret all the parables is the authority figure is always God. And in this parable, the uh, the worker is saying no to God. So shout out to Matthew Corman, fellow choir author who wrote the book saying no to God and pointing out that it's really our duty to say no to God when uh, that which we think is God is something that is unethical or immoral or goes against who we know God to be. And so in this instance, yes, like you would say no to the person who owns the field because, I mean, as I was saying earlier, like, and, and Keith, to your point, maybe, maybe the worker in the field was pulling off the figs uh, and, and it does bear fruit, but figs don't Figs don't ripen the first couple of years, so it may bear fruit, but they're not ripe fruit. You'll just have these tiny little unripened figs. That's not just unique to figs. You generally pull fruit off of young plants uh, early on so that they encourage, so they don't put their energy, they don't have the means to produce nice, juicy, delicious fruit in the first couple of years. You want them to establish their root system and put their energy into green growth so that you, you know, later down the road, when you do get ripened fruit, you're going to have more of it in abundance. So this is another instance where, and it, I don't know, we've done now eight of these parables where every authority figure is some sort of dick or asshole. And we've always equated well, it to God. And now, now this is... I mean, now this, this, the, in this one, it's like he's a, he's someone who owns the field, but nothing more. He doesn't care for the fig tree. He doesn't know anything about it. Yep. It's pretty clueless. It, I love what you just said. And so then in, in a sense, what it seems that the parable might also be suggesting is that to not bear fruit in these three years isn't bad. It's not even unreasonable that it's actually normal and very okay. Right. It's not like, Oh, what an embarrassment. What a disappointment. Um, it's like, well, no, if you understand how figs, trees work and all, and everything else we've already talked about, then yeah, you shouldn't expect this fig tree to have really great fruit in the first three years anyway. So that's, so that's okay. Well, and I, um, with a little, a, a little question from Keith in the background too was like, why is there a fig tree in a vineyard? And right. so for the botanically challenged among us, of which I am one, I'm the kind of person who goes to a plant nursery and I say, please give me a plant that I can't kill. Um, <laughs> because I do not have a green thumb That's at me. all. And they, they, they're usually pretty good at that. Um, but I know that rose bushes, um, I, whenever I go to wineries in Northern California, they always have rose bushes at the end of the vine because they get similar diseases. Uh-huh. 
uh, as vines. And so they, they can use them as kind of barometers about the health of the soil. And a quick Google search t- tells me that fake trees did the same thing. Good. But to sort of add to that, the landowner is, is asking the fig tree to do something that the fig tree is not there to do. It's asking it to produce fruit. Uh, but the job of this fig tree is to measure yeah. the soil. Good point. Not to produce fruit. That's why it's in a and, vineyard. Yeah. In a vineyard, not, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a um, grove, right? Yes. It's not a crop. Yeah. Yes, here it's there to do something else. Thank you. And when I look, yeah, I know, right? And then when I look at what comes right after this, it's the story of the woman who's been bent over for eighteen years. Uh-huh. So I think that this parable also might have a lot to say about sort of worthiness, kind of looking at the killings that come right before this with the Galileans and the Tower of Siloam that falls, um, and that we're like. We don't die or live because of our our worthiness in this way. Hmm. But also the woman with the spirit that crippled her for 18 years, she's not unworthy because she has a broken body. Yeah. Right? She's not unworthy because she's not productive. I like that. And the fig tree is not unworthy because it's not productive. So it seems like this also has something to say to us today. I don't know that I can make the case for the ancient world, but about like productivity culture. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And how, how we find our worthiness, like we're worthy just because we are. I love it. Not because of what we do or even what we believe, but just because we, we live, because we're, we're created. And, and I think the, the other thing here is that this is a referendum on time. That, you know, we, we put a time limit on things because that's how we, we measure life, by time. And that this, this three years, we're looking for something to happen in a finite space when we we shouldn't be looking at it in a finite space will it will it ever bear fruit we don't know but we do know that it's a living thing and so as long as it lives it has value yeah yeah, and, and so, love that you know, yes. so, you know we're 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 looking at things like time you know we run out of time and they say, oh, was this person died without knowing Jesus? Well, you know, who's to say that, that, that that's the end? Right. Right. You know, who's to say that the, the finite time that we assign to things is the duration, that that is the, that that's the metric? Yeah, I like that so much. Well, uh, and if it, and if it is that God and is so small and is so, I mean, if you think about the vastness of the universe and the vastness of time and the vastness of God, and then you're like, oh, but you only got 50 years or 60 or back then, like 40 years is pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> and now, you know, you've got in the Western world, you've got 80 years, if you know, 85, 90, if you're lucky, and that's going to determine uh, your infinite eternal destination. I mean, like, oh, because this one parable says you'll be cut off and you're like, I think there's something else going on here, but that may, maybe I'm wrong, but I think there is. Yeah. And fig trees were often, they're symbols for Israel. Yes. And then probably in the New Testament, also for Israel and the, the people of God. And so, you know, I think there's also maybe an element of like colonialism here. Like the fig tree is the lone fig tree in the vineyard and vineyards are also really popular images in the Old Testament. And so the, the fig tree is kind of withstanding um, this culture of, uh, of cash crops. This wine, uh, grapes were certainly cash crops and they certainly were not native uh, in ancient Israel. That's a Roman, that's, an, that's a colonial thing to do to make people go and grow cash, grow cash crops. Uh, and so I feel like the, the fig tree is also a little statement of protest. 
in the vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, 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 I am the new Israel. Like I am, and the Israel, like, no, you can't cut me down. No, I get one more year. And certainly if this was written after the temple was destroyed, that would have even more significance. Mm. Yeah. Like and so the other, the other thing is interesting too. Um, I had mentioned that, you know, in Leviticus 19, there's this law of first fruits that uh, it's forbidden to eat fruit from any tree in its first three years. So here, here's the little punchline. Like, so if that's the case and like the, um, let's say the, the, the owner of the vineyard is like a, a Gentile, he's a pagan, he doesn't understand these Levitical laws. Um, and this is a fig tree planted in a vineyard that's in Israel. Then not only is there, is the vine dresser removing the fruit those first three years and pruning them off, uh, uh, to follow that law. The funny thing is that in the fourth year, all of the fruit in the fourth year is offered to God completely. So he won't even, he's still, when he comes back, it's going to be like, look at all this amazing fruit. Yeah, you can't have any of it. <laughs> well, and in the absence of a temple, that's even more poignant, right? Like there's, that, that gets off, it must have to be, be offered in another way. Well, maybe, see, well, here's the thing. Uh, I'm, I'm just totally guessing, but a lot of times there's offerings that are given. When you say something is given to the Lord, it's given to the poor. Yeah, it's distributed. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually good news to the poor, which is the gospel, according to Jesus, right? Yeah. He proclaims this jubilee, this good news to the poor. And so, yeah, you know, in a way, yeah, maybe in some ways that's what, that's one of the ways this parable could have been understood. Like, oh, hey, we get it. Like, hey, three, this idiot thinks in three years he's supposed to get fruit, but no, he's going to, hey, come back in the fourth year. And then the fourth year, guess, guess who gets it? All the poor people, not the rich guy. This is totally against American Jesus. I love it. <laughs> totally opposed to American Jesus. There's no cowboy here. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Derek, any anything that we have thus far missed on why you chose this parable, or any um, any last words of wisdom or things that you might want to cover? Well, you know what this is. This has been sort of a metaphor for me and in, in my faith because. I believe that I planted a, a fig tree or planted a tree and it didn't bear fruit. And, uh, and so my, my, uh, my desire was to cut it down. Now, again, that's a metaphor for my life. That's not for everyone. That's not the overarching lesson. That's just the part of it that appealed to me. Now, I, I, I believe that, that there are, that you can find a fortification for faith here, or you can find a, a total abandonment of it. And, and it really just kind of, it kind of comes down to your interpretation. And, and at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. It, it's, it's really taking what you read and saying, in what way is this practically applicable? In what in what way can I use this in in my daily life? And and that's you know so I I thought that uh, on a lot of different levels you know I, I I closed with my own how how it impacted me. But when when I look at it from from my my formerly Christian lenses, I see a lot to unpack, I, and and I see a lot that. Um, that could, I, I actually, it's funny that this is a parable of growth because it literally is a parable of growth. You know, it, it, but it, it, how, how you grow is entirely up to you and, and whether you 
grow in the way that is expected of you or not is immaterial because your growth is your growth. Yeah, I love it. All right, good stuff. Before we land the plane, I'll just say that we do have what has probably become one of my favorite parts of the parable series. Next episode, we're going to write our own. So it'll be, again, a challenge. So everyone... Look forward to that one coming down the old pike there. And uh, last thing that I'll say is that we do have a website. It is heretichappyhour.com. And from there, you have all of our episodes, you have all of our merch, and you have uh, a bookstore, access to a bookstore, which is going to give you roughly 15% off retail price and features many of the books from our wonderful, wonderful Heretics of the Week. So please check out heretichappyhour.com today. Y'all come over to Heresy After Hours. It's a free Facebook group. There's a couple of thousand heretics similar to you asking snarky questions, cursing a lot, Cursing big trees, putting all sorts of stuff up there. They're they're cussing, they're cursing. You might get cursing. No, you won't get cursing there. Anyway, uh, it's a great group. People are asking all sorts of deconstruction questions. So we'd love to have you heresy after hours. That's right. And by the way, if you are one of our beautiful, beautiful Patreon supporters, let me just stop and take this moment and say thank you. Thank you so, so much. We love you. Love you, love you. Love you, love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you get to enjoy all the awesome, cool stuff, that we, the extra stuff we record. We record it just for you, exclusively for you. We record extra podcast material, uh, extra interviews, uh, post crazy things um, on the Patreon page. And um, we just really appreciate your support. If you don't support us yet, um, you know, this would be a great time. Go ahead over, go on to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and support your favorite podcast. Uh, it would mean so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, and we can't end that without the famous Keith Giles wet kiss. <laughs> right. So if you really love this podcast, you need to go out to iTunes and give us a five star rating. Five stars, five, the number of grace. Give us grace. In the iTunes. And, and I promise you that by you supporting this podcast, no one will dig a trench around you and try to shovel shit in your face. <laughs> That's a guarantee. We can That's guarantee you. That will not happen to you. <laughs> Five, the number of grace, no manure in your face. Never heard that. Oh, man. That, that, well, that's, that's a rambler. Matt, write that down. Yes. <laughs> Jot that shit down. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my hidden talent right there. Beautiful. See, I told you, you, have, you and Missy Elliott have a lot in common. That's true. That was my biggest compliment ever. Hey, call the hotline. Leave us a note.